been discussing the enlightenment of the Buddha using Sutta number 26, Sutta number 36, and then last week I took in one short Sutta from the Sanyutta Nikaya, which deals with the Buddha's enlightenment as the, say, the penetration or realization of dependent origination. And last, last week we went entirely through the Buddha's enlightenment experience, and now, based on that short sutta from the Samyutta Nikaya, and now we come back to sutta number 26, to the period after the enlightenment. Here, now we are back to 26, sutta number 26, paragraph 18, or actually paragraph 19. In paragraph 18, the Buddha speaks about his enlightenment as the discovery or realization of Nibbana. Nibbana as liberation from birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. And at the end of this attainment, then he comes to the realization, the knowledge and vision arose in me, my deliverance is unshakable, this is my last birth. Now there is no renewal of existence. Okay, now after the enlightenment, we can say a new phase opens up in the spiritual career of the Buddha. He now stands at a new crossroads confronted with the task of making a new decision. This is the decision whether or not to go out and to try to teach the Dhamma. Okay, now as he is sitting still in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, actually according to the account of the Buddha's life in the Vinayapitaka, immediately after the enlightenment, the Buddha spent some 28 days, according to the commentaries, 49 days, meditating in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree and contemplating from different angles the truths, the principles that he had realized with his enlightenment. So now the paragraph that begins, paragraph 19 here, this we should understand might take place about a month or even up to two months after the enlightenment, after the Buddha has gone through that very profound period of meditation in which he's been examining, investigating, contemplating the Dhamma from many different angles and gaining, we could say that the first original experience of enlightenment was just like arriving in a new territory like you make a trip maybe from Sri Lanka to Thailand and when you set down in the airport and <laughs> the car takes you, a taxi takes you into Bangkok and you arrive in Bangkok, maybe that's like the enlightenment experience. But then you have a two week or even a month vacation in Thailand and you will make excursions to Chiang Mai, to Ubon province, what? <laughs> That's the west part of Thailand. 
Kanchipuri, Kanchipuri, Kanchipuri to the south, northeast island, that's Ubon. So you investigate the whole country. And now also, since you are not here maybe on vacation, but you are maybe part of like writing the inside travel guide, inside travel guide, or lonely planet travel guide for Thailand. More than just sightsee, but you have to get collect a lot of information about Thailand in order to prepare this tour book. So this is like the Buddha is now investigating the Dhamma Datu, the world, the domain of the Dhamma, from many different angles, many different perspectives, till he has mastered it completely and seen all of these roads, all of the different provinces, regions cities, towns, within this realm of the Dhamma. Now at the end of this period, one month or two months, he emerges from this deep meditation and begins considering whether or not he should teach. Then the reflection comes to him. Here I'm reading from the text. This Dhamma that I have attained is profound hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and fine, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation, here by generation he means the world in general, not just one particular people in a particular age group, but this world delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. Actually the word translated worldliness maybe is not so good, but the translation worldliness is not so good. The Pali word is alaya, which means something like attachment, settling down on something, adherence, clinging. So the world delights in clinging, takes delight in clinging, rejoices in clinging. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely specific conditionality, dependent origination. And it is hard to see this truth also, namely the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. And here in this reflection, the Buddha shows the two, I call it the two aspects or sides of his enlightenment. First, there is conditionality or dependent origination. This we saw that the Buddha discovered when he, was, he began reflecting what is the cause for bondage to old age and death. And as he reflected and examined this issue, then he found that birth is the basic condition for aging and death. And as he went inquiring into the condition for birth, back step by step, he came to this interplay 
of consciousness and name and form, vijnana and nama rupa. And as he was investigating, he kept on seeing how vijnana and nama rupa arise each conditioned by the other, just like a vicious cycle. So he couldn't find any way to get out of this circle or vortex of consciousness functioning together name and form. In other words, with various cognitive functions and with physical form. Then suddenly at some point within his experience this mutual conditioning of consciousness and name and form just collapsed, broke apart and collapsed. And then his mind attained to the asankata-dhati, the unconditioned element, that which lies outside the whole process of conditionality, that is nibbana. And so we have the two aspects of that realization set out in this brief passage. First there is specific conditionality or dependent origination, that is this interplay of name and form and consciousness. Then when name and form and consciousness break apart and collapse, what remains is the unconditioned. That is the second part shown here. That is the stilling of all conditioned formations, the giving up, relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. And so as the Buddha was considering first at one moment conditionality, another moment the nature of Nibbana, then reflecting on the nature of humanity, the world, he thought that people's minds are just so heavily coated with defilements, corruptions, with greed, attachment, hatred, violence, ignorance, delusion, that it would be too difficult for him to teach the Dhamma. If he were to go out and teach, he would invest a lot of hope and energy in this enterprise, and it would be futile, because he thought no one would understand. Therefore, he thinks it will just be wearisome and troublesome for me. Then he expresses this thought in two verses which he says occurred to me spontaneously. He says, enough with teaching this Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. And so when he reflected in this way, then his mind inclined towards inaction 
Swords living quietly in the forest, keeping his realization to himself, not trying to teach others, not trying to enlighten others, just living out his days like a Pacheka Buddha, meditating peacefully till his death comes, then passing away into final nirvana, and nobody will know of his existence. <laughs> he won't go down, maybe if he goes down in history at all, will just be as one quiet ascetic <laughs> who lived in the forest of Magadha in northeast India. But the world wasn't going to let him get away with that. Because <laughs> now, in the next scene, <laughs> and I think we should have this dramatized with a camera crew <laughs> to turn it into a motion picture, we have Brahma Sahampati, who is one of the Brahma gods, one of the deities reigning in one of the high celestial realms in the Brahma world. And he somehow has this power of knowing the minds of others. And he is a, he has been in previous lives a supporter of the Buddha Sasana. And now he knows that a Buddha has appeared in the world. And so he is following with his own mind the stream of thoughts, chain of thoughts in the mind of the Buddha. And so when the Buddha's mind is leaning towards inaction, towards not teaching, then Brahma Sahampati suddenly becomes full of fear, anxiety and worry, not for his own sake alone, but for the rest of the world because as a supporter in previous lives of the Buddha Sasana, he wants the Buddha's teaching to flourish in the world. And if the Buddha is going to keep completely quiet, then the teaching will not spread in the world. So when the Buddha reaches this point in his reflections, then Brahma Sahampati thinks to himself, alas, the world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Tathagata, the accomplished one, the fully enlightened one, inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Then, very quickly, we're told, just as a strong man might stretch out his bent an arm or draw in his extended arm. Brahma Sahampati vanishes from the Brahma world and appears before the Buddha in this, by the river Neranjara. And now he's <laughs> depicted as being dressed just like an Indian nobleman of the 5th century, 4th century BC. With a something with a, with a robe like sup, what do you call this? Like a chivara, robe something like a chivara. He arranges his robe over one shoulder, that's the polite form, then bows down 
with his hands extended in the Anjali, bows down and pays homage to the Buddha, and then pleads with the Buddha to teach the Dhamma. He says, Venerable Sir, Bhante, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma, let the Sukhata, the Sublime One, teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are falling away through not hearing the Dhamma. Teach the Dhamma to them, for there will be those who will understand the Dhamma. Then Brahmasampati speaks some very beautiful verses in order to reinforce his this appeal. He says, In Magadha there have appeared until now impure teachings devised by those still staying. These would be the teachings or dhammas that have been made known by the other religious teachers of the period. Open the doors to the deathless. Let them hear the Dhamma that the stainless one has found. Just as one who stands on a mountain peak can see below the people all around, so, O wise one, all-seeing sage, ascend the palace of the Dhamma. Let the sorrowless one survey this human breed engulfed in sorrow, overcome by birth and old age. Arise, victorious hero, caravan leader, deathless one, and wander in the world. Let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand Very beautiful verses. But this whole incident raises a certain question or problem in interpretation. It's, we're always told that the Buddha is the great compassionate one, that he teaches the Dhamma out of compassion for the world. Then the Buddhist, you say the Buddhist literature that is accumulated, tells us that the before his enlightenment, for countless millions of lives, countless thousands of aeons, great kalpas, the Buddha, or the future Buddha, followed the career of a bodhisattva, perfecting the ten great paramitas in order to achieve full Buddhahood so that he could teach the Dhamma to the world as a Samasambhuja. And now that he's reached the goal, he refuses to keep his mind inclined to not teach him. This is just as if you had made this thorough tour of Thailand, collected all of the information. There are thousands of people out there who want, need a guidebook to Thailand. Now you return home with pages and pages of notes photographs, and then you think, no, too much trouble to put the guidebook together, I won't do it. 
So the question or problem comes up, if it's really true that the Buddha had such great compassion and really had fulfilled this long career of a bodhisattva for countless aeons, developing the ten perfections in order to become a tathagata, a perfect one, then how can he back up on this task, back off this task, at the very moment when he's ready to fulfill it, when he's become an enlightenment? Some might say that maybe this whole story about the bodhisattva career and about the Buddha's great compassion is itself all just a developed mythology and that it took some outside prompting for him to teach the Dhamma. Others might interpret this incident symbolically that Brahma Sahampati was not a real character but was just sort of the voice of conscience as a symbolic representation of the voice of conscience in the Bodhisattva. What the final solution is, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, but I will give okay, my <laughs> interpretation of this now, which is not necessarily authoritative, but it's just the way I would see this. I think we have here represented symbol. Well, it's both, we call it a marriage of fact and symbolism. We have represented two movements in what you call the spiritual spectrum of Buddhism, Buddha Dhamma. One, I would call the movement of ascent, which means going upwards. The other is the movement of descent, going downwards. Now, the earlier part of the sutta was concerned entirely with the movement of ascent. That is the movement of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, from his state of being an ordinary person, reflecting on the human condition, then renouncing the household life, going into adopting the life of an ascetic, undertaking the practices of self-mortification, finding the middle way, practicing the middle way, reaching full enlightenment. So that takes them all the way, you could say, to the top of the mountain. So now he's entirely outside samsara, outside the realm of birth and death, and completely detached from any bondage, any fetter to the realm of conditionality the realm of ordinary human existence, ordinary sentient existence. But to really fulfill what you might call the implicit significance of his Buddhahood, he has to come back down to make the movement of descent, not to stay an ordinary person, but to come back into the world in order to teach and to guide others to deliverance. But I think the way that is being depicted here, the appeal or request has to come from the world itself. If the Buddha were to make the decision on his own to teach, 
it would be like he was interfering <laughs> in the lives of others, sort of like some of these, okay, like Christian missionaries who come in and start handing out this missionary literature and getting up on a platform and making speeches, you have to believe this, otherwise you go <laughs> hell, and sort of imposing their beliefs on others. So with his enlightenment, the Buddha becomes completely emancipated from the world, and he has all of this potential to, become, to function as a Buddha, develop through the perfection of the paramis over countless lives. And he has that Mahakaruna, the great compassion. But in order for the great compassion to start to function and for him to assume the work of a Buddha, then the world has to appeal to him to undertake that activity. And here the world is being represented by the being who is, you can call it, the highest representative of the secular world. This is Brahma Sahampati. I think the word Sahampati, it's treated in the text like a proper name, but I think it's really a contraction of Sahastampati, which means Lord of a Thousand. In other words, the Lord of a Thousandfold World System. And in fact, in, in the Pali version of this incident, the one who invokes the Buddha is Brahma Sahampati, but in the version that comes in the text called the Mahavastu, which comes to come down in Buddha's hybrid Sanskrit, it's Mahabrahma who makes the appeal, the great Brahma. And in the Mahavastu version, Mahabrahma doesn't come alone, but he also comes with Chakra, Lord of the Devas, and with many, many other devas, so there's a huge assembly of brahmas and devas and yakshas who all come to make this plea to the Buddha. And this represents symbolically the highest beings in the secular world appealing to the Buddha to step down from this pinnacle, this top of the mountain peak, and to come down to the plain and to meet those, the ordinary people, who are in, engulfed in sorrow, overcome by birth, old age, and death. Okay, and so now when Brahma Sahampati makes this appeal, then the Buddha says that he listened to it and then out of compassion for beings I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. The expression used here is Buddha Chakku. This is not an ordinary eye, not even the fleshly eyes of the Buddha but it's the kind of inward vision by which the Buddha can scan the entire world and see the mental tendencies, see directly the minds and innermost thoughts, aptitudes, disposition of sentient beings. 
So as he surveys the world with the eye of a Buddha, then he sees beings with their different characteristics, different capacities, different mental aptitudes. He says, I saw beings with a little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good qualities and bad qualities, easy to teach and hard to teach, and some who dwelt seeing fear, actually I should read, dwelt seeing fear and blame in the other world. Then he uses a beautiful simile to illustrate what he saw. He compares this to a pond of lotus flowers. Could have blue, red, or white lotus flowers. Some lotus flowers are born in the water, grow in the water, and they thrive under the water and never come up over the surface of the water. These are like those beings who have much dust in their eyes, much defilements and ignorance, and so they don't have any chance of awakening to the Dhamma. At best, they can progress rather slowly. Then he says, I saw some beings who are like lotus flowers that are born in the water and grow in the water, but they rest on the surface of the water. These might be like the persons whose faculties are in a moderate condition, who have some capacity for understanding, but they need a lot of instruction and training. Then he says, I saw that there are some lotuses that are born in the water, grow in the water, and they rise up out of the water, and they stand above the surface of the water. These would be like those persons whose faculties are very mature and they need only the teaching of the Dhamma in order to awaken to the truth. These would be perhaps people like the future Venerable Sariputta, Bhogalana, Mahakasapa, who as soon as they heard the Dhamma expounded were able to at least achieve the first stage of enlightenment without any special training or practice, but just by understanding. Okay, so as the Buddha gazed out at the world and saw how human beings were like lotus flowers at different stages of growth, then he realized that there were, that there were many beings, out, many people out there with little dust in their eyes who would be able to gain enlightenment through teaching. So then he makes the decision to teach. Then he replies to Brahma Sahampati, he says, Open for them are the doors to the deathless. Let those with ears now show their faith. 
release their faith. He, with this verse, he points out that the primary condition for gaining access to the Dhamma is the sadha, having faith and being willing to listen, to put away one's skepticism and doubt and to listen with a mind of trust and faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahma, I did not speak the Dhamma, subtle and sublime. Then Brahma Sahampati, thinking that now the Buddha has given his word that he would teach the Dhamma, realized that his function was finished and he departed at once after paying homage to the Buddha. Okay, now the Buddha, after making the decision to teach, is going to have to reflect to or decide to whom he should teach the Dhamma. And he thinks first of his two former teachers, first of Alara Kalama, his first meditation teacher, and then he decides, let me teach the Dhamma to Alara Kalama. But then, when this thought occurs to him, then he realizes, then deities, devas, come to him and tell him that Alara Kalama died just seven days earlier, and also to himself the knowledge spontaneously arises that Alara Kalama has passed away. Then he thinks, let me teach to my second teacher, Uraka Brahmaputta. He will be able to understand the Dhamma. Then suddenly the knowledge comes to him that only last night Uraka Ramaputta passed away. It's a rather strange coincidence that he should die so suddenly right after the Buddha achieves enlightenment. Is there some special significance? Okay, but not everyone has passed away since who was connected with the Bodhisattva. Since, if you remember, there was a group of five ascetics who were attending on him in the hope and the expectation that if anyone in this who's struggling amongst the thousands of seekers in that part of India, if anybody is going to reach enlightenment, it's going to be the Bodhisattva, the safety Bodhisattva from the Shakyan time. And so they were very diligent in attending on him when he was engaged in his practice of self-mortification. But then when he realized that the way of extreme austerity is not the correct path to enlightenment and started to resume taking normal food then they became disgusted with him and thought he had given up the struggle and they have deserted him. But the Buddha now thought of these five ascetics and realized that they were very, had been very helpful to them, very helpful to him during his period of struggle and he also thought that they are keen-minded and wise and intelligent 
so they made a wrong decision. And so now he has decided to teach, to make them the first receptacles of the Dhamma. And he investigated with his own mind where they might be dwelling now, and he saw that they were living near Benari in the Deer Park at Isipakana. So now he is setting out to walk from, this would be around Bodh Gaya, Uvela Gaya, to walk from there to what's present day Sarna. And this would be, if we give a 49 day period sitting under the Bodhi tree, perhaps seven days reflecting trying to decide whether to teach or not. So this would be two months after the Enlightenment. So if he was the Enlightenment took place in May, say, this could be, well let's look at just seven weeks. Okay, this will be about early July. But it has to be, since the first sermon is said to have been delivered on the full moon day of July, so this would be about 49 days after the Enlightenment. Then we leave a one week to walk from Bodhgaya to Benari. Then you get exactly the two months. Okay, so now he's wandering by stages from Gaya and the place from Uluvela to Benari. And as he is walking along, one aesthetic who belongs to the sect called the Ajivakas. The Ajivakas were in a sect, the Ajivakas were a sect of aesthetics who practiced extreme self-mortification. They had the basic view was that of determinism or fatalism and their practice emphasized extreme austerity. And so this ascetic named Upaka saw the Buddha walking along the road and said to him, Friend, your faculties are clear, the color of your skin is pure and bright, was very impressed by the manner and appearance of the Buddha. Under whom have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? Whose doctrine do you profess? Whenever wanderers and ascetics of this period meet each other, then immediately after they exchange their greeting, they enter into conversation by asking, who is your master and whose doctrine do you teach? And probably at this time, well at this time, the Buddha would have been 35 years old, which was relatively young. So when this Ajivaka Upaka met him, he wouldn't have thought it conceivable that the Buddha is ready to be a teacher himself. So he thought that this ascetic must have some old teacher who's 
old, 70, 80 years old, and so he'll find out who his teacher is. Since the ascetic seemed to be so serene and so calm, because the Buddha, this Jivaka, would have thought that he must have had a very wise, enlightened teacher. And so Upaka asks him, who is your master? Then the Buddha speaks a verse in which he announces his own perfect enlightenment, that he doesn't have any teacher, since he himself is the supreme teacher. He says, I am one who has transcended all, a knower of all, unsullied, undefiled among all things, renouncing all, I am freed by the cessation or destruction of craving. Having known this all for myself, to whom should I point as teacher? I have no teacher, and one like me exists nowhere in all the world with all its gods, because I have no person for my counterpart. If anybody today were to say that, we would think he was being extremely boastful. <laughs> but I think the Buddha has to speak this way in order to make it known that he is the fully enlightened one, if he just tries to be modest, quiet, and display a humble manner, then nobody would place trust in him as the teacher. I am the accomplished one, that's the Arahant in the world. I am the supreme teacher, Satta Anuttara. I alone am a fully enlightened one whose fires, fires of craving and lust, are quenched and extinguished. I go now to the city of Kasi, Kasi was another name for Benares, to set in motion the wheel of Dhamma. In a world that has become blind, I go to beat the drum of the deathless. Of course, it's also possible, in fact probable, that the Buddha did not actually speak in verses he might have given his statement in simple prose. Then later, when the canon was being compiled, his reply was put into verse in order to make it more elevated. Then the wanderer, or the ascetic, Upaka, asked the question. In a way, he's a little bit, I think, the question might have a somewhat sarcastic tone to it. But also maybe he's responding to what seems to be boastfulness on the part of the Buddha. He says, by your flames, friend, you must be the universal victor. He uses an expression here, Ananta Jina. It's hard to know the exact significance of that expression, but it must have been perhaps the term used among some of these communities of truth seekers, this, their term for enlightenment. In the Buddhist tradition, the term has come out 
down as Sama Sangrupa. Maybe in some of these other traditions they would regard the enlightened teacher as Sananta Kajina, an infinite universal conqueror. Then the Buddha replies in order to show his own status, he says, the victors are those like me who have won to the destruction of the taints, the defilements, the asanas. I have vanquished all evil states, therefore I am a victor. We hear the Buddha showing the true attainment of a victor or a conqueror, that is the conquest of the defilement. But this ascetic, this Ajivaka ascetic, is still somewhat doubtful or skeptical. He's had the opportunity here to become the first disciple of the Buddha. <laughs> if he were to repose faith and to say, then teach me the Dhamma that you have realized, he would have been the first recipient of the Dhamma. But he just says, it may be so friend. And then he shakes his head, which is, I guess, a, an expression of doubt or perplexity. And then he walks off, departs and walks off. So according to the commentaries, and I think even some earlier literature, eventually this Upaka, he became dissatisfied with leading the ascetic life. And I think he was going for alms in some region where there was the daughter of a beautiful daughter of a hunter. Then he would go for alms to her house, and she would give alms from time to time. And he became infatuated with her. Then he abandoned the ascetic life and married her. And they had a child. After the child was born, then the marriage turned sour and she was always ridiculing him and teasing him for having given up his ascetic life to <laughs> become the son-in-law of a hunting family. And so he then ran out from his wife. I think this might have been close to the time of the Buddha's, I don't know, at some point. And then he found the Buddha and became ordained as a bhikkhu by the Buddha and achieved arhatship. Then the wife, after the child had become grown, she went running, searching for her husband, and she found him as a Buddhist monk. And then she requested ordination as a bhikkhuni, and she became an arahant. <laughs> okay, maybe we will stop the discussion at this point, then next time we will finish this sutra. Okay, I wish you all happy new year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.